Welcome to Conversational Commerce. Each week, we'll be having real and raw conversations with operators and experts in e-commerce, all about what conversational commerce means to them. I'm your host, Stephanie Griffith. Let's jump in. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Postscript. There are other SMS solutions out there, but Postscript is hands down our favorite SMS tool for e-commerce brands using Shopify and Shopify Plus. They work with some of our favorite brands like Olipop, Brooklinen, Kapari, and thousands of others. And sure, they are our sponsor for this show. Thanks, Postscript, but we love them for many other reasons. Postscript is the leader empowering brands to have two-way conversations with their customers using conversational commerce. They have integrations with your favorite platforms like Gorgeous and Klaviyo, so your brand can be truly conversational. Most importantly, their customer support is next level. I've worked with brands that use Postscript and have been blown away by their customer support. It's no wonder they have over 1,400 reviews and are rated 4.9 stars in the Shopify App Store. For a free 30-day trial, check out our link in the show notes or visit them at postscript.io. Again, that's postscript.io. Hey folks, welcome back to Conversational Commerce. We are so excited to be talking to Kristen LaFrance today. Um, she's got a lot of titles. Usually my introductions are pretty short and sweet, but this one is pretty noteworthy. So Kristen, I'm going to put you on the spot here and, and go through some accolades. Um, she is currently the Director of Community at Repeat. Uh, she is also known as the Mayor of DTC Twitter. Um, and she's also the Founder and Slack Mom of the DTC Fam Community. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am literally blushing at that. The the accolade read is so weird for me every time. I'm like, they're half fake titles, I swear. <laughs> they're so well deserved. But I totally, I totally feel you on that. <laughs> do you want to do you want to take some time and tell us a little bit more about your current role um, as director of community at Repeat for the folks that are listening? Yeah, so I joined Repeat about three months ago or so, two and a half to three months, whatever time is. It's 2021. I don't think any of it counts anymore. Um, I've been in the DTC space for about four years or so, kind of been always talking about retention and repeat purchases and making people come back to your brand and creating a longstanding business in this world of kind of golden era of DDC. And it all came around to me joining repeat where that is literally our focus is how can we get a brand from a customer purchasing one time to two times, three times or four times, maybe ultimately getting on a subscription, but really trying to create repeat customers with brands that are doing amazing things. And it's so much fun. I say all the time, my job is literally just to talk to people who are smarter, cooler, and doing more amazing things than me. I don't know how this is an entire career that I've come up with. Um, Even my mom is like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, I talk to people, okay? And they're cooler than me and they're smarter than me. That's all I do. So I don't know how I've gotten to be where I am, but I love it so much. And I just get to meet all these founders and these operators who are doing incredible things. Like weekly, I'm on a call with an operator who's telling me what's on their to-do list for like the CPG brand they work for. Everything from email to loyalty to retail partnerships to the D2C paid ads. And I'm every time like, and I think like my job is hard and my life is hard. This is insane. Uh, so yeah, I have the coolest job of all time. If I can like condense that into one sentence is I have the weirdest, coolest job of all time. 
I love that so much. I think you and I are very similar. Um, for the <laughs> listeners out there, we definitely had a whole, a whole lovely conversation right before we jumped into the <laughs> studio, uh, where this became even more apparent. Um, but I, I love that. And it was, it's funny. I only recently had an epiphany when I was talking to Matt. I'm like, how did I end up? as a podcast host, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you, uh, you know, also oh, yeah. as a, the host of a podcast can understand. I was like, why, why did I not see this happening for myself? And how did I find myself here? And I was like, oh, duh. It's Cause I love to freaking talk to people. And yeah. that's, that's what we are. That's what we're doing. Um, and so I'm so glad that you said that because I think it fits in perfectly with what we're trying to do here at conversational commerce. So that's really been kind of the evolution of what we're seeing in the DTC space. Not just DTC, though. It definitely bridges online and, you know, in-store retail. And I'd love to kind of get your perspective on what is conversational commerce? When we talk about that, what does that mean to you? Um, Because it's kind of a new word. Oh, what a good question. It's a new word and a new term. And what I feel like often that I come around to is that it's an old concept And not old in the sense that it's bad, old in the sense it's the original reasoning for commerce in general. Like if we go back to the very, very first iterations of commerce, it was trade between tribes. So these are people who are saying, hey, we have something that you guys need and you have something that we need. Can we find a reasonable, mutually beneficial way to trade these products, trade this this commerce and create a system so we all benefit? That is really the heart and soul of commerce in general. And just because we found new channels and new ways to do it and new systems to do it in doesn't mean that heart should be lost. And I think a couple years ago, uh, maybe this is like three, four or five years ago, a lot of people refer to this time as like the golden era of D to C. For those who cannot see me doing this, I'm doing some like quotes over that because I don't necessarily agree that this was the golden era. And that was Mm -hmm. when, you know, you could throw up a Facebook ad for $10 and make $20 on that Facebook ad because online shopping and conveniency and quick checkouts, this was all like new and novel. And that was the quote golden era of D2C. But I always say somebody who tells me that I'm like golden era for who though? It was a golden Mm -hmm. era for the people who want to make a lot of money off of consumers, but for consumers, That was actually a really, really bad era of commerce where they were often being sold crappy products at a crappy price with terrible shipping, bad experiences, uh, 25 emails a day. It wasn't a good time for commerce. And this is why Amazon became what Amazon did because they saw that that experience was bad. And so they came in and they kind of, they kind of took it over from underneath, right? They saw that this was not a good time. And so, Now I think we're in what I really truly believe is the golden era of D2C and that it's the golden era for the consumers of D2C products where instead of only being able to shop with giant conglomerates, with giant corporations, with brands that have enough money to get in front of you, consumers have the option to get in front of brands and to buy from brands that really align with who they are, who they want to be, what they believe in, what they want to support what the larger meaning of their lives and their purchases are. And that leads to a requirement of brands to do conversational commerce, which is to tell their consumers 
all of these things. Hey, here's the reason why I started a brand as an entrepreneur. Here's the story behind getting to the product. Here's the story of what we do. Here's the story that's bigger than the products that we're selling. And that, to me, the requirement of conversational commerce, or I think the better, like, the way that I put it often is the human way of doing commerce or going back to the original reason of commerce was to mutually benefit human beings. That's no longer an option. That's a necessity. That feels golden to me because that feels like it's worthy commerce for consumers. Mm. That was such a long-winded and around-the-world kind of answer to that question. But I think that looking at the history to the present is very important to understand why conversational (laughs) commerce feels... Uh, it's a lo- it's a lot of times like what I say community feels like a buzzword right now. It's not a buzzword. It's something that's been around since human beings have been around. Just mm. like conversational commerce has, it's really just human connection is what we're mm. really talking about at the end of the day. But the digital world has made it a little bit easier to side sidebar some of those harder parts of the equation. Oh my gosh, I think. I feel like you just gave an A plus like PhD worthy dissertation oh. on the evolution of commerce, but, but in, in such a beautiful way. And that's definitely a theme that has come up for us on the show of like, it all comes back to the human element. Yeah. Um, we've talked to, to various folks and, and that becomes kind of that, that ethos. And I love that you challenged what formerly was considered, you know, the golden era. Um, and I'd love to give you a follow-up question to that. It's, do you think folks thought it was the golden era because they thought it was easy? And folks being brands, like brands thought it was easy. Yes. A hundred percent yes. I think the reason it was deemed the golden era of DTC was because it was golden for people who wanted to make money quickly on mm-hmm. products that they may or may not have had a real heart for. And mm. as much as that was beneficial to the overall economy and it sparked more product innovation, it sparked more marketing innovation, it sparked so many te- technological innovations. I mean, Shopify wouldn't be around if companies hadn't have done this. Therefore, everything outside of Shopify wouldn't be around had we not had this kind of push towards creating better and better experiences. So I I think it was golden for some people. Mm. And now I think we're coming around to a point where it's becoming golden for the people who it should actually be golden for, which is the consumer, mm. which mm-hmm. is, and at the same time, every brand owner, I think sometimes forget that they're also a consumer. So really the golden era of D2C is, can you buy products that you want and need that make your life better in a way that matches your lifestyle. And I think that is where we are. And that is golden. And that is Mm. amazing. That's really hard for a brand to do. And I have so much sympathy and so much understanding for what that entails, especially this year and looking forward. It takes a lot of work. But I think that saying the golden era of commerce happened when anybody could make anything and sell it to anybody for any price. That doesn't feel golden to me. That feels like Mm -hmm. a, an R and D kind of, kind of situation. Golden feels like forcing people to make money based on creating value for other humans and Mm -hmm. creating products that other people want and need and having a reason behind what they do. 
That feels golden mm-hmm. to me. And that might be a little bit controversial in the D2C side of things when I talk a lot to operators and ad creators and, you know, all the people who kind of support this economy of, of e-commerce on that side. But I think if we cannot put ourselves in the shoes of the customers and the consumers, we're always going to be playing this like hamster wheel game. Mm-hmm. And so the golden era is really the era in which every single person who's running a brand can understand the consumer and give them value at every touch point. That's golden to me. Mm-hmm. That's oh. and and that's very specific, but that's not a fun like come make fifty million dollars on your one product kind of conversation. <laughs> Totally. I love that you um, just called it controversial because Matt, I think we're going to, we're going to rename the show controversial. <laughs> Conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. No, it's so, it's so true. Um, and something we've talked a lot about and it, it was in, you know, kind of the ethos of the show premise when we were talking about what we wanted this to be was the concept of conversations over conversions. We, we use that framework a lot. It, it's yeah. easy. It kind of gets the point across. Um, and it really set that foundation for not just what we're doing here on the show, but ultimately what we are hoping to see at the brand level. And I think what you just articulated and stood out to me is it's not brands over consumers anymore. It's like yeah. brands and consumers coming together and recognizing that like there's a, there's a reciprocity or there needs to be a reciprocity. Um, this might be one of the most beautiful episodes. Like we're getting really like. Can we, can we also just take a moment and really soak in the word reciprocity that you, I, and I even just said it wrong. Reprosity. Why can I say it? Reciprocity. Reciprocity. What a beautiful word that I couldn't even say back to you. Uh, <laughs> nailed it. But that, I mean, that is really it. That's like the beauty of what has come out of commerce is before D2C, brands had the power and brands were able to say, you know, I think Sears is a really good example, like nothing against Sears, but for so long they had market power where mm-hmm. they could say, if you want to buy a new dishwasher, you're coming to Sears. It's mm-hmm. all you're going to be able to do. It's the only way you're going to get it. It's the only way you're going to get it delivered. You're going to come into the store. You're going to look at one, and then we're going to deliver it to your home. And that's the only way you're actually going to get the best product. And mm-hmm. so for so, so many years, brands had the power to tell consumers how they should behave in the market, how they should spend their money, how they should expect experiences, and what is the best they can possibly hope for. Mm. And especially with the pandemic, that really like accelerated this trend. But e-commerce has brought in this democracy of commerce where now consumers can say, I actually don't really love what you're doing, so I can demand better. And there is a mm-hmm. brand out there who's going to give me better. So no longer just doing the bare minimum is mm-hmm. good enough for most of your consumers. Like, yes, there's always going to be consumers of these brands who do the bare minimum. Um, I don't even know if Sears is still around. But, like, there will always be people who find, like, the Sears magazine valuable. But also now I can go and type in, like, what is the best dishwasher? I could spend two weeks searching before I buy something online and I never even have to go into a store. That's a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest transition in commerce in general has been a power shift 
from Mm -hmm. power belonging to the brands to say you have to shop in this way and you have to shop at this price and in these channels in the way that we dictate and on our sales cycle. And mm. now consumers are saying, eh, actually, nah. no, I don't really, nah, like, nah, bitch, I don't really like that. We're going to do it these all these other ways. And the way that I interact is going to affect your data so that you're going to have to treat me better and better. And you're going to have to serve me in more channels in a better way. And there are these things that I want. And that's coming back to the like first question. That's what I think is golden. Consumers should should have power. Consumers mm-hmm. should have a dialogue. It should be a, a a democratized system where it's back and forth of what does a consumer actually want versus what can we provide and how do we find a middle ground for those two? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's kind of my thought on that, that transition of power. I like yeah. it. I really do like it. Yeah. I, li- no, I, think, I think this is golden. <laughs> I agree. I love this. I think we're going to have a lot of like, almost like the golden, like the 10 golden commandments of commerce, right? Like we're <laughs> yes. going to, I'm sure by the end of this, we will yes. have 10. I love that. The power shift is so important. And as soon as you said Sears, um, my mind went to like the Abercrombie and Fitches of the world. Like that, yeah. you know, I, I worked there actually. I worked for their corporate office. It was my first job out wow. of college. Yeah. I don't, and I don't, I don't have anything negative to say, but it was really interesting to work for one of the brands that we generationally grew up being so heavily influenced by. I mean, yeah. think of like pop culture songs. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh my like, goodness. I'm going to yeah. plug it because like brand was power. Brand, like you could just use like because brand as like a, because a reasoning. Abercrombie. Because because Abercrombie or, you know, because um, I worked for, I worked at PacSun in the mall. Like think of malls. Re, like, I in store. bet if you were to spray the Abercrombie fragrance in my room, I could pinpoint it immediately. Same. I walked yeah. in somewhere. I think I, I actually just recently went. Um, oh, I went. I did go to the mall. I was downtown. Um, my partner and I went to see Dune and we walked by an Abercrombie and I was like, got a whiff of it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, that's that's either Abercrombie or it's mahogany teakwood candle yeah. from Bath and Body Works. <laughs> I'm uh, 14 again. Immediately. Right? That even this conversation, like it transports us back. Like you can yeah. you can think of your local mall. And I love that we have I'd love to get I think we're gonna we're, we'll segue into the topic of retail because I know you, you've done a lot of um research and, and had conversations in that space as well, but we have kind of broken the boundaries of brands. Of yeah. brands are no longer confined to this exclusive space that is a physical mall or a physical storefront. And I think this is like an interesting kind of paradoxical evolution. I'd love to, I'm going to volley that back over to you and kind of say like, how, like, what is your kind of take on breaking the bounds of retail now that so many things get to exist in the e-commerce space? It's kind of the evolution of retail, I guess. Yeah. It's been so interesting to watch because in my career, I, kind of came out and started in the D2C e-commerce digital native brand only space. And then I went over to the retail space and then I've kind of managed my way back into the D2C. But now I'm in the CPG space, which is this interesting combo of you cannot do CPG without a retail component as well. Mm. It just, you have to have the physical component for your product. And so I have this really weird strange, overarching view of how all these industries work together. I think the craziest thing I have 
seen with it is that, you know, when I was in high school, when I was in middle school, we hung out at the mall. Like we went to the mall. We shopped around all the time. I randomly bought stuff. I was loyal to the brands that were at the mall because I could go in and try on clothes or test something out. And then through college and right after college, that completely shifted where then Mm -hmm. I became almost fully shopping online And since then, it's kind of become this hybrid model. And I I don't know if that's because my behaviors changed or because I became much more aware of my behaviors, where I realized there's certain things I buy in person and certain things I buy online and certain things that I want to cross touch point for. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I think this evolution of retail is another one of these things we want to be A plus B equals C, and then we go to D, and then we go to E, F, G, except for the pandemic came in. And so we had, you know, A plus B equals D to C is the way to go. And it's the golden way and absolutely like screw retail. We don't want to do retail. I don't know if anybody else remembers like the quote unquote golden years of D to C or where they, we used to talk about like retail is dead and D to C is the way to go. And then this like complete shift came in with 2020 where so much retail closed. And then we saw a lot of D2C go into retail. And mm-hmm. a lot of us were going like, hmm, you guys said the retail was dead. And now you're taking advantage of low prices for retail. And now you're getting into this omni-channel thing. And now omni-channel is like the number one buzz term in marketing and D2C in general So retail is constantly evolving. And I think this comes back to the beginning of the entire conversation of commerce is always conversational. It's always human-based. And our human needs change in a way that data can often not predict, which is Mm. very uncomfortable for a lot of us as brand founders and as operators. We rely on our data to tell you what's coming next, but then things happen and humans behave in ways that data can never predict. And like the year of 2020 where retail was supposed to die, retail came back stronger than it has in like 10 years. So things are never expected. I think the only thing you can come back to is humans want to shop like humans and they want to have connection to the things they're buying and they want those products to add value to their life beyond I bought it and I walked out of a store with it and it made me feel better in that moment. Or I went to Amazon and I added to my cart and it felt better in that moment. We're all now looking for deeper connections to the world around us, the climate around us, the missions that we believe in, the purposes that we believe in, maybe even the political leniency you go to, whatever side it goes to, these are things that now define our characteristic because we lost a lot of physical connection. So Mm. we're buying into things that mean things to us, that mean something, that tell the world something about who we are. So I think the evolution of retail follows that storyline more than it follows Mm -hmm. the news cycle of the the pandemic, the coronavirus, the closures, the privacy laws, uh, iOS 14 and 15, whatever it is, I still think that commerce is going to always follow a human direction more than it will a news direction. And that comes down to we all lost a lot of physical contact with people. So we looked for it somewhere else and maybe mm. we found it in brands And so now as we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, we're coming back into physical confrontation with other people, 
we're seeing a lot of brands really getting a lot of traction from responding to that human response of now mm. wanting a little more physical connection. And so I oh. think retail tends to follow a human behavior pattern more than the expert behavior pattern or the news behavior pattern or what everybody is saying in the data. I think it's mm. one of the interesting places in commerce where you cannot predict most of the time what's going to happen because mm -hmm. humans are going to do what humans are going to do. And a lot of times we don't follow logical things. <laughs> humans, yeah, humans are going to human. Uh -huh. <laughs> humans no, are going to human. Yeah, no, I think you said a lot of amazing things there. And it sounds like if, I, if I'm hearing you in summation, it's not necessarily, I mean, I guess there is an evolutionary piece. Um, and I like that you, you attached it more to human behavior and human evolution. It's not, you know, we can, t we can try to take credit all day as like marketers, but again, we yeah. are humans. We, we are, it's funny. It's like, we're almost slow to catch up to our own human behavior. <laughs> we're like, yes. Oh, this, a lot of the stuff we do, I think, I, I think the things a lot of successful brands do uh, is common sense. It's like, well, duh. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, make, make it human, focus on that thing, treat people. I say this a lot. I've said this on every conference talk I've given podcasts I've been on. I'm like, consumers are asking us to treat them how we want to be treated like that yeah. it's really the here's the golden rule there's another one the golden rule um there we go. All back to that and so i think also what you kind of touched on is not even just the evolution but a resurgence of retail um yeah. but we're seeing that in the physical sense um like you know out there in in the world like tangibly but then also trying to emulate that online. And so yeah. I think that's the cross section that we're at now is how do we bring the best elements of retail online um, to drive that, you know, more human kind of experience. And then also, I think conversely, retailers trying to catch up and figure out how do we yeah. also bring some of the convenient elements of online experiences in store. So I think that to me is what has stood out as kind of the paradoxical evolution. It's almost like not not necessarily a switch or a reversal, but they're sampling from one another. Omnichannel, yes. it's yeah, Omnichannel is back, baby. <laughs> We're it's bringing back, baby. Back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Really, and Omnichannel is, it's a term that I hate and I love all at the same time. I hate it because I think for brand owners and operators, it feels like a call to be everywhere possible as quickly as as feasible. All and the time. All the time. Be everywhere at one time with the best content you could possibly do. And that is, I mean, every single operator that I've talked to in the last couple of months, I end the call with like, how the hell are you guys doing what you do? How are you mm -hmm. running all of these things as one person, two people, three people? How are you doing it? You're having to mm -hmm. manage retail operations in your D2C channel and also TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, which are massively different audiences and different kind of content you're creating. How can a small team do it? I am more amazed than ever at the brands who are able to transcend their brand voice across all those channels and transcend their content to be really native to each channel to build this kind of, no matter where you come to us, no matter where you engage with us as a brand, we're going to give you a great experience. Mm. That is something that I feel like 
and I've said it almost in every talker interview I'm in, I feel like I'm saying, I'm giving you floaty advice. Like I'm not getting, I'm not giving you tactical advice, but I also can't. I always have to say it depends. But also the tactical advice is really, really hard to execute. And mm. I don't even know how it's done other than you know your product, you know your brand, you know your audience so damn well that you can transcend that message, that story, that mission into a million different ways of communicating it with your customers on all these million different of channels. If you can do that, then you're doing a really good job. But that's not easy. And so I always mm. want to caveat everything I'm saying with like, I know it sounds like floaty advice, but that's because it is floaty in the sense that it's really hard and then mm -hmm. it really comes down to your personal beliefs in what you're doing and mm -hmm. then your ability to kind of transcend that and that is one of yeah. the hardest things to possibly do before we move on i think to a new topic is kind of again that that golden era and the concept of why why it was easy yeah you had a lot of copycatters so it's like oh well, brand created, you know, this website or, yeah. oh, this was, it was easy to create a brand or create yeah. a product and put it online. And I think I've seen this throughout my career um, on the, the email and, and even now in the SMS space, even though SMS is relatively new, I shouldn't say because, especially because SMS is relatively new, we're seeing a lot of copycatting. So it's yeah. like, oh, this brand has an SMS program and this is how they're approaching it. And even myself as a marketer, and especially someone who is very vocal about um, not necessarily best practices, but things that I do think from a tactical standpoint are good to look yeah. at, I also have to be very careful in making sure my word is not like gospel, because it's yeah. like you still need to take that tactic and make sure you're translating it for your own brand, for your own audience, and not just copycatting everyone around because that's how you, I think I've heard this term. I don't know if you've heard this blands, like bl brands uh, that are just yes. like every other brand. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. We don't want blands. We want bespoke yes. experiences. Um, and I think you yeah. sum that up so beautifully. I think if we think about it too, back until, you know, when Instagram was kind of new and hot and like, I have talked a lot to my friends who have no connection to this world of D to C and especially living in a city. I'm in Colorado Springs. Like it's not New York. It's not LA. We're not getting everybody who lives here is not getting an advertisement every time they open Instagram to the hottest brands ever. It's just not a massive market. So the even the vocabulary of people is is very different. And the way they even think about brands is so different from the people in our industry, blands. I love this statement because I live in a city that is not necessarily highly marketed to with the most popular DTC brands. And I live in this weird controversy of like, I work in the hippest brands and I know everything that's coming out. And then a lot of my friends, like, they've never heard of Outdoor Voices. They've never heard of Fly by Jing. They don't know what house is. Like, I live in a city where this is not marketed to, but I also think there's this combination of consumers where a lot of the brands that came out on Instagram first, you hear them say, you know, they define these brands as Instagram brands. And that's something I've learned really recently is I tried to figure out, like, how are consumers defining what we call, like, 
CPG, D to C unicorns? Like what? How does somebody who doesn't know these terms, how do they define them? And they always call them just like the Instagram brands. And I think what happened is there was this big boom of kind of Instagram, beautiful um, visual brands, the pastel pinks, content. the nice blues, <laughs> content, conversational commerce that they kind of half-assed a little bit. But a lot of that were then those have all started to blend together. And now you can no longer stand out by just being not bland. Like you have to stand out by being different. And to be mm. different no longer is just having a nice packaging, nice unboxing, nice branding, beautiful website. That will get you to basically 1.0 of D to C. And so mm. now if we're in 2.0 to 2.5 of D to C, what's going to get you the rest of the way? The brand is necessary. The visual identity is necessary. The mission is necessary. The storyline is necessary to really sustainably grow. The conversation mm. is probably the most important thing. And the mm. reason somebody buys your product and the mission behind the product and the story behind the product and the why behind what does this add to my life as a consumer, that is what people are buying into now. It's this, this kind of constant evolution of buying into a beautiful brand might have been D to C 1.0 or what we kind of referred to as golden era. 2.0 might be buying into something that has a really nice checkout experience. Maybe now we're going into something that has a beautiful social proof, really good brand, good checkout experience, but also like why? Why mm -hmm. am I buying that and why should I buy it again? I think is the mm -hmm. biggest questions brand should be thinking about is mm. now no longer why buy, why this brand, why this product, why this founder, why again? And mm. I think that is the biggest question to answer these days is why come back again for a second time? Because we have the opportunity to buy from anybody anywhere in the world just about and get mm. a, a whole spectrum of quality. So why again? Why can I get somebody to come back to me not just for one purchase, but for two Hopefully three, four, five, six, and maybe even beyond that. I think that's the mm. hardest thing we're all looking at now. Yeah, I think you uh, you just teed yourself up really well for my. I love it, Matt. Did you want to jump in? Just that that comment, the last point, Kristen. Like, get them to come back more multiple times. Yeah, anywhere you go in the world, or at least in the country, if the brand ships U.S. wide, you can then get that product if you move. We, and that's, this is again, going back to human uh, experience and the pandemic and culture and this, these movements, we're no longer just stuck in the, uh, um, I've yeah. been stuck in my house. I haven't done much traveling, but we're not just stuck to this location and work and is, is 30 minutes away drive. It's not like that anymore. So you can, your yeah. brand loyalty is not physically driven mm. and I you can take that, it yeah you can take it with you exactly yeah. i just had oh. to like drive home that point and like I really ampl amplify what you said but wanted to pull it out really more yeah brand loyalty is there's a word there like borderless <laughs> borderless location agnostic transferable tra there's a, there's like a really beautiful word that we'll find in there that'll like make yeah. a slogan a t-shirt right there. Yep. <laughs> so many merch opportunities, but no, I think that's beautiful. That's really powerful. And it comes back 
to what we talked about, um, even with the mall concept, right? Yeah. Like we used to be stores were largely, uh, pretty location specific. I grew up, um, in a time when, so we talked about Abercrombie Hollister. Hollister was like the oh, hottest yeah. brand. Oh yeah. Like, if you didn't have Hollister. You weren't cool. And I was trying to be a cool girl in my husband still to this day has Hollister cologne. And I still to this day love the scent. Yeah. So it is built into something. (laughs) mm -hmm. And like, I think folks knew and they did attach themselves to, you know, different levels of community and cult followings around these brands based yeah. on the locations in which they existed. Like we would travel to the far away mall where we're oh, like, yeah. there's a, there's a holster or there's a flagship this, or, you know, a flagship that same thing, you know, when people, they travel to New York city for shopping or Paris or Milan, you know, for, for shopping that we, we don't see here, maybe yeah. even in our lifetimes. Um, so I think that's a really amazing point and something I didn't even think about Matt until you said that. So I'm, I'm, I'm floored. Um, I yeah. love that concept of brand loyalty has no, yeah, it's borderless. We'll, we'll come it has no, a, a has word. no bounds, no physical bounds. I think it comes down to, we talk a lot about loyalty and retention, um, and hype and like drop mentality and all these things. I think what it really comes down to is a human desire to be seen and heard and a human desire to belong. So something as simple as, you know, Outdoor Voices is an example I'll always use. I haven't even bought anything from them in maybe over a year. A lot of their product drops haven't really spoke to me. Speaking? Spoken? They haven't really spoke to me. But I still follow the brand. That still felt wrong. Uh, I still follow the brand. I love them. One of the things that I constantly talk about Outdoor Voices with is their community building. And a lot of times brands want me to point to a certain thing they've done. Like, where did they build their community? Where is the Facebook group? Where is the this? Where is the that? Give me a platform where it's on. And it's so much bigger than that. It is conversational commerce in the sense that Outdoor Voices has created a conversation around their product so big that it is something about just doing things. It's this idea of their mission is you move your body, you're doing something, and that thing is worthy, and we're going to celebrate that. Like, Mm. that is, in essence, what their entire mission is, and that feels very big. But then you see they're sharing these tweets from people who recently one girl tweeted, like, um... I saw another girl across the street with a doing things hat on. And so I knew we'd be best friends. Uh, another girl who was like, if you're not carrying around your blue doing things tote, how can I even know you're doing things? Like there is this whole mentality around outdoor voices that is so much bigger than their products. And you can even go into brands like bite toothpaste bits that's has like this massive sustainability or Allbirds massive sustainability mission you can still feel like you belong to that brand, even if you're not the most sustainable person ever. They're creating a space around their products where people can feel like my ideas are heard, I am seen, the way I feel about things are recognized and respected, and that in and of itself is what a brand really becomes. There's all these comparisons to brand and religion these days, and I think it's a actually a really good kind of comparison of 
religion is often something that people get really connected to because it makes them feel like they belong, makes them feel better about their lives, better about themselves, better about who they're trying to become. And that's what brands are kind of becoming in this modern age. And so as a brand, you have to think about what is my larger mission? What is my larger conversation with my consumers that will make them feel like my products are not just products. Yes, they're fantastic products and they're going to help them find success in their life. They're going to help them get to the goals they wanted to get to when they bought my product. But also they're going to be involved in a larger conversation around our products that will keep them coming back to my brand again and again. And that's where the like the golden comes from. That's where the magic comes from. That's where it all is happening is we all just ultimately want to belong somewhere, whether that's in person or offline or it's Snapchat or it's Instagram or it's TikTok or it's Facebook. That's why Omnichannel is such a big talking point right now is because we define our belonging by so many different touch points mm. that brands mm -hmm. now have to play that game. And it's a hard game to play, but I think it's a worthy game to play. Yeah, I think you've you've teed yourself up perfectly for... <laughs> I think the, you know, the, the meat of this episode in particular, which of course is about community. Um, yeah. I know your background is strong there. We've, we've already been, it's been so core to what the, the, the beginning of this conversation, us talking about wanting to belong. Like we, we want to belong. We want to belong to the DTC yeah. Twitter community. Like that brings us together as founders, as operators, as marketers. Um, and then of course we want to offer that to our consumers in the same way. So I think my first question for you is, do you think we're entering the golden age of community? Oh, good question. I am afraid. I am afraid that we could be entering a tarnished golden era of community in the same way we entered a tarnished golden era of D2C where it was the next big thing and it was the thing to talk about and it was the thing to say and it was the tactic du jour. Like, it was the thing that would find you success. And mm -hmm. I literally said in a meeting this morning, as a trend I've been seeing is my inbox from, hey, can, can you come consult us on growth and branding – to earlier when I was talking about retention was, hey, can you start to consult us on retention? And now I'm seeing this trend of getting a lot of inbound requests for, hey, can you consult us on community? And while that might sound fantastic for me, for a brand going through that process, to me that sounds like chaos and confusion of mm. It's growth at all costs, and it's retention at all costs, and now it's community at all costs. And how do we do all these things? And so what I've said to a lot of the brands that have come to me for that is, why community? And what does community mean to you? Before I can help you with any sort of strategy on community, what is community to you? Because I think community is becoming another kind of buzzy term. And this is coming from somebody who is a director of community. It's in my title. It's something that I have a lot of pride in building, but I think it's becoming the next kind of content marketing or SEO mm -hmm. or Facebook paid ads where it's kind of looked at as a tactic in a larger game. Mm -hmm. And for me, community done the right way 
is the long-term play. It is the overall consensus of, are we building a brand? I don't care if it's SaaS or physical product, if it's CPG or finished goods. It is building something that people want to be involved in and helping people beyond just the thing that you give them Mm. and so that they can find success in their lives. That's community to me. Anything other than that is a tactical buzz term that I don't Mm. love. And I don't think it should be a tool in your arsenal for retention. I think it should only be something you want to do if you are emotionally invested passionately invested, spiritually invested, physically invested in the story you are telling about the thing that you are selling. Other than that, go into sales. Don't go into community. And <laughs> and so the golden era of community, I think is, I think we're coming up on what it will be like the golden era of D2C was, where it becomes this highly talked about topic. We're all going to be following the keyword for it. We're going to be competing against SEO for it. We're going to be trying to talk about it. We're going to be the one that talks about it the most. But ultimately, like, sometimes I feel like I'm saying not smart things, but I'm like, community is the foundation of good business. It's knowing who you're selling to, knowing why you're selling that to them, why they want it and how it helps them, and then making sure everything you do is in service of that right there. Mm. That is timeless. There's no golden mm-hmm. era of doing that. That's just humanity at its best. Mm-hmm. So oh. I, I'm hoping that we don't enter into the tarnished golden era. Um, I'm trying to fight against it because I think community is much bigger than what we often talk about it as. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my quick, long, very long takeaway. <laughs> no, the show has been great in illuminating some themes. And one of those big themes has been not just falling back on tactics or singular yeah. KPIs or checking the box. So I think community, uh, if I'm hearing you, you know, if I'm hearing you right, you're basically saying, don't make it a thing that you're just, you're checking off. You're like, we, we yeah. did it. We did, we built the community because it feels very selfish in that yes. in that way. I think brands, some brands are like, we're going to build the coolest brand and the coolest community and to selfishly drive this cult following of yes. brand or product. And that inherently is not really what community is about. Um, yeah. It drives me to think of, and I, I have one, but I didn't really fall into the, the cult following, I think, the same way other people did. But Peloton. Yeah. Um, I think Peloton, uh, there is this inherent, not to say that there isn't a community element there, because I do think when we think of how community comes to life sometimes in Facebook groups and hashtags on Instagram and meetups and leaderboards and things like that, I do think that's an interesting example. Um, but it's ultimately still to drive the cult following of the product. Yes. Um, and there's some interesting news coming out right now about how I think they're not, they're actually not doing as well as people would think or expect them to do considering they have put so much behind building a cult following of their brand. Um, so I think that for me, it stands out as one of those really interesting ones of like, they're clearly trying to build that, but it's clearly, it's, it, it's not bridging the gap the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and driving those bigger conversations. Yeah, it's a really good conversation to have internally. Also, mm. to think about the bridge between community and sales and where the importance on that bridge really lies. So the mm. importance on it lies often in your timeline. Are you trying to build something 
quick and scalable and growth at all costs and you're trying to get to that that sale, that IPO as quick as possible, maybe community is actually not your best bet. Granted, I'm not the person to take advice from if you want to VC fund a company, grow it to growth at all costs and sell it. I, that's not the kind of thing that I know how to build or really want to be building in this world. But if your goal is to be building something sustainable over the long run, so in 10, 15, 20 years, you're still around and people are still talking about your brand, even if you've sold it to somebody else. Um, I think about Levi's is such a good example of this. Mm. Levi's has played the long game through and through. Levi's could approach things the way that a lot of really high spend kind of companies do. And they obviously spend a massive amount on paid ads, but they also do partnerships that have no direct ROI to sales. They do community building. They have resale stores. They have all these different things that do not connect to direct ROI. So like the the Levi's that I bought at my local thrift store are not going to make me go to Levi's online store and buy more, but they are going to give me more and more of a slow investment and understanding of what Levi's means in my larger life. Mm. And so then maybe when one day, I don't know, maybe I'll have a teenage daughter who wants jean shorts, I automatically trust Levi's over anything else because that's my experience with them. And I think, you know, sometimes talking generationally for brands can be hard because you're like, by the time my daughter's born, this brand's going to be gone. But also remember that, like, my mom wore Levi's and I'm wearing Levi's right now. Those things are transferable if you can really tell the story across the long term. And so even if your plan is not to build over three, four, five generations, you want to build over 20 years, thinking about that long term is really where you get the benefit. So Peloton is a really good example. Although they are very aggressive in paid ads and paid acquisition and mm -hmm. getting more and more users, that lack of connection between community and really how they're doing in the market, depending on how they define success, internally they might be looking at it, that might not be a bad thing. They might be mm. saying, we've got this massive community that is highly engaged with the brand. In over 20 years, that's going to pay off. And over 20 mm. years, all these people are going to be having their kids grow up with Pelotons in their home. And then they're going to start to think about it. And then the Peloton app is going to become this. And then we're going to have new products. And it's going to slowly build a brand recognition. Maybe that's how they're measuring success on community. So a lot of times when we come down to community, it's one, what is your definition of it? What are you measuring success on and what is the goal of it? And if you're coming to me and you're saying, I need help with community, if your goal is not long-term, then I don't think it's a tactic worth checking the box on because it is a long-term tactic because often you're going to be building connections with people who may not use your product and they may not use it ever. They may not use it in the timeline that you're tracking. And they're definitely probably not using it in your most optimal metric timeline. Because it all comes down around to this idea of customers. And, and we've talked about so many different slogans. Mine is kind of customers before metrics. In the sense of, if I make a fantastic experience for somebody who's been on the Peloton app for 
two years or they just love Peloton and they want to be invested in the brand, but they can't afford the bike, the day they can afford that bike, they're going to love the bike and be a power user. That's worth Mm. it to me. That's customers before metrics. That's knowing that Mm. if you invest in your customers and their experience, ultimately the metrics are going to follow. So the bridges, and this is the hardest thing for any community manager, is people want to know what are the bridges you're building? What are you proving? What is the ROI on everything you're putting into? Because we're spending money and resources on it. And the hardest thing is to prove the value of a community. It's in the long term. So if I can give Mm -hmm. any advice to someone who's like trying to do this, highlighting qualitative data is going to be your best thing. It's just highlighting Mm -hmm. like, look at this conversation. Look at what we learned from this. Look at this contact we made. Look at how Mm -hmm. we were able to talk to this customer. Look at how this customer brought in another customer and maybe they didn't purchase, but they still talked about us. Like Mm -hmm. all this qualitative data is how you prove it, but it is, it's a hard job and it's a hard game to play because we want metrics. We want proof. We want quick wins. So it starts with a mindset shift. And then it's this, mm. this long game they are playing. That's not fun. Nobody likes a long game. I don't yeah. like a long game. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so hard. I think um, as marketers and folks that work brand side, so much of our job performance, our job expectations, yeah. what we do in our jobs comes down to measurement. Um, and we've learned that. And I think something that's been really beautiful on this show and a lot of the conversations we've had has been not just talking about like doing things that don't scale because we, we've touched on that, but we've over the last couple of conversations, we've talked about measuring the unmeasurable. Mm. So basically that qualitative component that you talked about. Um, and I'd be remiss not to shout out Val Geisler because we talked yeah. to her and she, she was awesome. She said some really cool things on one of, one of the best ones was, you know, we're, we're measuring vibes, not metrics, which I think is so, yeah. such a cool way to think about that because vibes, it's, it's all about the mindset, right? Yeah. So it comes back to that. And then she did kind of break down, um, a really cool framework of measuring the impact of something. So I think what you're saying is like, it's, it's, you know, you might not see that immediate ROI. We're definitely playing the long game. So sure, you might not see some of those, those things happen tomorrow, but you can definitely long-term measure the impact of some of those qualitative elements, Yeah, um, which I think is really, really cool. So it's not impossible. And I think, yeah, shifting your mindset, focusing on the long game is going to be, is really going to lead you to a better ROI in the short term and the long term anyway. Um, I so think, it all comes back. Yeah, I think, and this is also a danger of what we used to call the golden era of D2C, which was every little thing was measurable. And so we got addicted to measuring and analyzing. And that is, it is so addictive. You can prove, if I write this, I get this many more clicks. I get this much more engagement. I get this much more money. But I think we have to come around to Think about like your spouse or going on a date with somebody. How much easier would the world be if we could all like have a a little ticking like plus one, plus two, minus one, plus one, plus two, little like time tracker of how well we were doing in life. But we don't like the good place. Like the The good place. (laughs) Yes. A scorecard on constantly how we're doing. And instead we don't have that. We all have to intuitively understand 
We have to empathetically understand the, what I just said upset somebody or this nobody laughed. Now I feel uncomfortable. This is why social anxiety is literally a thing. Like what email marketer has social anxiety about sending an email? We don't have that, but we should because we are still talking to human beings. So mm-hmm. thinking about all your e-commerce interactions as now I can actually get some information on how I'm doing But also remember, it's the same as going to a dinner with your friends where you're having to kind of in real time say like, he might have laughed, but he didn't find that funny. Or like, Mm. he might have hugged me, but it was a side hug and that felt uncomfortable. We have so much intelligence in our emotions and our ability to read humans. We have to go back to doing some of that in commerce as well. Because D2C has given us so much access to data, we just have to constantly balance it with like Mm. humans don't act in a statistically beneficial way for brands just unfortunately we don't i'm sorry yeah (laughs) how interesting and so i want to talk a little bit more about community because i'm curious do you think that community is is a way to achieve conversational commerce like what's the interplay there i do i think it's almost Almost the only way to do it, and I don't know if if I can say it is the only way because community is defined by so many different things. Community is the the crossover between content and conversation and CS and sales and product, and it's everything that's happening in and around your brand with your consumers. That's a big thing to define and say that's the way to do this, but I was just on a, a a debate, quote unquote debate, which we ended up just constantly agreeing on, which was content versus community, which one's more important, which one you start with. And, and the takeaway was always, they come hand in hand. You cannot do community without content because you, what are you going to give your community other than content? And you can't mm-hmm. do content well without community because what content are you creating without knowing what your community actually wants you to create? So mm-hmm. I think- The difference between the traditional definitions between content and community are, is it a one-sided thing? Is it me as a brand, me as a marketer telling you here are the five best emails to send, read this and go do it, versus Mm. what emails are you guys sending and what's working the best? It's Mm. the same conversation. It's just one way versus two ways. And then these things interplay all the time. So say, you know, in one version, I could just write the article with here are the five emails that every CPG brand should be sending. Or I could go and say, hey, what are the five most profitable emails that you send in your welcome flow for my community? Mm. And then I can write the content. And then Mm. I've got community and content all working together. But it's content created with a conversation in mind. It's content created from what my community is telling me they're doing and they want to learn more about and what they actually want. And so, yeah, I think that truly to be conversational in your marketing and your commerce, you have to have community because community mm-hmm. is the only thing that requires back and forth. It's a two-way dialogue. It's not you just asking somebody something If nobody responds to you, you don't have a community, you have a marketing channel. 
if people are responding to you, you have a community. And so each channel can also be defined as a marketing channel or a community channel, depending on how your users are engaging with you. But in order Mm -hmm. to have a conversation, it has to be community because community requires two-way dialogue, at Mm -hmm. least. It actually requires mostly like multiple-way dialogue, but at least it requires some back and forth to even be slightly uh, successful. So yeah, I think if... If you want to do conversational commerce, which you should want to do, because it is honestly the only way to truly thrive in this world now as a as a brand online, then community has to be a part of it. And that comes mm-hmm. in creating a holistic experience with your brand and giving value beyond your product. Everything you've said has been so impactful. And I, I this is one of my favorite episodes to date. <laughs> I do think it's, it's really like our like our love letter to, to yeah. commerce on like what it has been, what it is, what we want yeah. it to be in a lot of ways. Um, but on the community side, I think community can accelerate conversation. Yes. Um, I loved how you talked about it. It's not just because we've, we've had this progression of it used to be one-to-one and that yeah. was a big push for, for email, the, you know, right message, right person, right time. But all of that is one way directional. It's me. It's brand to person to, to yeah. one person. It's not really inviting that conversation back. And then we talk about two way, which I think is where we're at now, largely Mm -hmm. of, especially in in SMS or chat or customer service experiences where there is like the chance to engage both ways between person and brand, um, you know, et cetera. But I love what you just said about it's multi-way. And I think that's where the acceleration comes in and where brands that do community the right way can really benefit because there's going to be conversations that their participants uh, in those communities start to have that they otherwise wouldn't have started. They wouldn't have known, um, which I think is really fascinating. Another guest we had on the show, um, Joanne Coffey from Aisling Organics. She talked a little bit about the importance. They have a Facebook community for exclusive to purchasers or VIP purchasers where it was so interesting to hear like, They'll, you know, they'll get product feedback in those communities because they're like, hey, like you folks are using our products. Like we want to talk to you. And like, what do you think about this? And would you want to promote this? I think they've they've worked with influencers in that way um, in a really community focused element of like they truly want that product and the following around it to be beneficial, to be educational. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm excited for you to hear that one because I think she, she talked a lot about the, yeah. the core tenets of, of doing community, not just right, but for the right reasons too. For the right reasons is the, that's the end all be all of community. And that is what makes community difficult and also very fun all at the same time. So as a community manager, every community you go in to build has different goals, different reasons for being in a community, different things they're looking for, different things they want to look for. And the hard part is a lot of times those people don't know what they're looking for and they're not going to tell you. I think about, you know, I listen to Armchair Expert religiously and Dak Shepard talks about AA all the time. And I've thought about kind of comparing AA to communities that we've done. Mm. And the best way I can think about it is no alcoholic ever is was ever like, I need to find a community and this is what I want it to give me and this is what I want to get out of it. That's not how AA was created. 
AA was created as a community base of somebody saying, hey, there's a problem. Hey, we can help you figure it out. We're going to bring in the right people to figure out the system. And then we're going to create all these processes to whatever journey you're going through will make it work. And I don't want this to sound like, like a blanket statement, support of AA. There's lots of like caveats to this statement, but I just find it a really good example of a community that is nationally, if not globally recognized, that was not built out of a demand from the community members mm -hmm. itself. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of times as community managers, we think, oh, if I just ask my people what they want, they'll tell me what to do and they'll make it for me. And then I'll set up this Facebook group and they'll all start talking and it'll be magic and it'll just happen. And this is actually something I've learned recently going from, you know, I, I have DTC fam, which has over a thousand members in it, which was kind of created almost by accident by me, which is like, there's so much engagement in all of the general channels in it because that is the space that that's where people want to go get that like group think kind of, I need mm -hmm. multiple answers really quick for an answer or for a question that I have. Versus the community I started with repeat, which we do have a Slack channel, but it's also, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's a community that breaches Slack itself, email, like it's multi-channel, it's just, hey, you're a part of something bigger, and what I've learned in that group is these group of people I've put in the community, they're not the people that need quick answers from a lot of people really fast. They're not going to be posting a lot in a general channel. And so like my first couple weeks looking at the community, I'm going, oh my God, my stats look terrible. I'm comparing them to D2C mm. fam. And then I finally realized, no, this community wants to DM each other and they want one-on-one -on -one, founder to founder conversations. And now I'm tracking this one and I'm measuring its success wildly differently where mm. last week there were 10 messages sent in a general channel, but 350 messages sent one-on-one -on -one between members. And D2C fam, that's a failure of a week. That's not what we actually are looking for. That's not what people come to D2C fam for. But when people come to repeeps, that's what they're looking for. So I think community also has this idea of, it seems like every other tactic where there should be benchmarks. There should be things that you know what to measure. There should be this kind of like playbook of approaching community of start a Slack group or a Facebook group, do X, Y, and Z, make sure you have an onboarding email, all these like go-to things. But even as someone who's built two completely kind of collaborative communities that actually feed off each other, you can't approach any community with any of those playbooks. They all have their own playbook. It all comes down to what does my audience for this exact thing want and need. And so that's what makes community really hard, but also super rewarding is when you do it right, you're serving the right people with the right thing at the right time because you care and they care. And that mm. when all that harmoniously comes together, that's when the beauty of commerce happens. Mm. Oh, I love that. And I know, I know you touched on it a little bit and I want to give you a little bit more space for those that are listening. Can you kind of back up a little bit and tell us more about repeats, like the yeah. community that you're building at repeat? What is it? Who's it for? What are you doing with that? Yeah. So 
repeat is interesting because we theoretically have multiple communities to build. We have a community of our customers to build. These are the people who are using repeat and they deserve more access. They deserve more content. They deserve more value from repeat than anybody else does because they're giving us money and they're serving us and we are serving them. So there's one community there. Then you've got this kind of like a little bit bigger orbit around that would be CPG founders and operators. So we service CPG companies with repeat. And so the community needs to be the people who will ultimately, yes, use the product and could find use of the product. But also my job is not tied to sales, which is a beautiful thing. And I got to shout out repeat and the executive team for this, that they understood that the community value cannot be measured on sales because that doesn't necessarily make sense. You can't track timelines of people's decisions all the time. You can't say, hey, just because someone joined the community and uh, Eli from Olipop is using repeat means that we should use it. So we're going to sign up within this specific timeline. That's not going to happen. And so I, luckily my my job is not tied to sales. So we have this community of our customers. Then we've got this little bit bigger of community that is CPG founders and operators. And it's very specifically right there and exclusively to founders and operators right now. Mm. And that is, uh, this is where community gets confusing. Community can be multiple different groups of people and it can be a large situation and a large organization that you're working on and a large subset of different target markets that you're talking to and different people that you're talking to. And then you can define them based on their physical location. So we have our customers who have a different set of physical access or digital access than somebody else does. And then we've got our repeeps community, which repeeps has a couple different levels to it. We've got the like full repeats access. So you are a founder, you're an operator of a CPG company. You are in our Slack group. You get curated intros from me. You get my office hours. You get to talk to me. You get to tell me what you're working on. You get every single piece of content we're doing. You get exclusive events, exclusive, all this stuff that you get because you have joined and you've raised your hand and said, I need help with retention. And I'm a CPG operator or founder, so I'm working on it. And then from there, you've also got another orbit and then another orbit. So from there, you've got VCs and service providers outside of founders. So you're talking about, I mean, repeat is a service provider or the Postscript or Clavio. Um, bringing in Val Geisler to do a workshop. That is a partnership kind of exploration of community. So there's mm. all these people that can help my direct community who sit around it, but we're kind of protecting a gate so we can give founders and operators a certain place mm. to engage without those service providers and experts. And mm. then even beyond that, then you've got VCs, you've got buyers, you've got shoppers, you've got grocery store owners, you've got any wholesale owners, wholesale providers. So there's another layer to the community then of how can I make sure that VCs are connected with my founders, that the founders who are new can actually get access to these buyers or these VCs or these grocery owners? And how can I be a matchmaker in the middle of those two orbits? So mm. community for repeat is very complicated because there are all these different. And like, I know if anybody's listening to this 
only on audio. You can't see me, but I'm doing like a solar system visual of like a circle that keeps going bigger and bigger and out. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, but it's like that where you have to figure out what is your, your core community? What's the next level? And then keep going out and then understand how do all those kind of orbits of people work in to provide your most valuable community with the most valuable content at the most valuable mm. time. And then how do you get those people to spread it out to everybody? So that is how I kind of approach community at repeat is that there's so many audiences to talk to. And also I come from a content background. So I always want to be giving people content and value, but thinking about what are the different markets of people I want to talk to? How can I give them different levels of access so that they're getting the most value from me and from repeat that they possibly can. And then also how do all those tie together and how can repeeps, which is kind of like my, my nomenclature for the community, which is fantastic. We had somebody on our team come up with it. Uh, repeeps is kind of my nomenclature for how this all connects. How can I make sure there is, you know, yes, there's a repeeps Slack channel and there's a repeeps homepage and there's different access to both of those levels, but how can I make sure repeat and repeep stands as a matchmaker between all these different levels mm -hmm. of community so I can bring everybody together in a beneficial way that may or may not benefit repeat at the end of the day, that's okay. I'm still representing something much bigger. So that's kind of yeah. how I thought about community going into repeat. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough job. It's not a rough job. It's a tough job, but it's the best job. Yeah. What did you say? It's the coolest, weirdest job. I the, think. Yeah, the coolest, weirdest <laughs> job possible job. to have. <laughs> yeah. No, I love. First of all, great name. It's so cute. I love it because I love it. I love that peeps, which is like you know yeah. people, obviously. Is in a, is in the core kind of, uh, nomenclature. That's a great word yeah. of the name of that. And I think it's really interesting. Something that, that just came to me as you were explaining this is that interplay and the balance between the exclusivity of a community, because there is sometimes yeah. like that's why people join them, but also the inclusivity. So it's yeah. like this interesting interplay of, you know, you want to protect that core group and make sure they're getting the value that was promised to them or that they're telling you they, they need and want and expect, but then also being inclusive enough yeah. to kind of fuel that. So that's a really, that one's really interesting. I loved the, the solar system concept. Great. Solar and I love system that you, concept. You basically provided like verbal alt text for that. So thank oh, yeah, you. Like, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. that was great. <laughs> we got, we got it down. Yeah. That, I mean, and that is ultimately the hardest. I love that you brought that up. The interplay between exclusivity and inclusivity is probably the hardest thing to solve as a community manager because you want to have everybody in because that'll look really good on your metrics. Like if I could go to every Monday meeting, you'd be like, 100 new people, baller, I'm the best community manager there is. That'd be awesome. But in six months, I'm going to have a community of a thousand people I can't control. And mm. then I don't know who they are. And so mm. having to build in an unscalable way is very difficult because you're having to manage this. Are you in this main orbit? Are you out of it? And then how do I manage the, the conversation between those two things right. is the, very complicated. Yeah. And the like, it sounds like you, you don't want to lose the identity of yeah. the community, like especially yeah. for newer ones, I imagine. And I'm, 
I am not a community manager. I've dabbled in some like local things, but really I think that's, that is a core component of any community. It has its own identity. And if you're building a new one and all of a sudden it's, it's lost and you don't know what it is, then I imagine it's hard to know what you're building for or who you're building for. Yeah. And then the community itself, ultimately like the most, the largest measure of success for a community is it ultimately starts to run itself and you don't even Mm -hmm. have to run it. This is what's happened with D2C fam, which I kind of accidentally created because it was like, oh, I need a place to talk to all my best friends because I'm a a one-woman marketing team. And so I brought in my favorite people and here I am three years later and I looked at it at some point in the last six months and I was like, oh my God, we used to have 60 people in here and we're hitting a thousand. And it, it becomes to the point where D2C fam is managed without me. I could not mm. exist and D2C fam would still exist because it has become bigger than me. It's become bigger than what I set out to do. It's the same thing we're talking about becoming bigger than your product is that you are creating something that other people are managing. Like I've got somebody who's running a D2C fam newsletter and our Twitter unpaid because he wants to, because he believes in what we're doing, because he believes in the mission behind the very beginning of the community. And that's ultimately, I think, what D2C branch should search for is how can you build something that then kind of grows itself? And yes, you're always going to be in there. You're going to be curating conversations, curating intros, matchmaking people together, making sure rules are followed. But also, can you create a conversation that is so big and so powerful that happens outside of your product? And to bring it Mm -hmm. around, this is what Peloton has done so well, is that there's millions of people who do not own a Peloton who are talking about how much they love Peloton. They follow the instructors. Maybe they go to their gym and they use a Peloton. They go to their apartment gym and they use a Peloton. Maybe they They've literally never stepped on a Peloton, but they follow the instructors. They have some gear. Like this is what community really is, is you don't have to have the product to be a part of something that matters to you. And that is where the right CPG brands, the right DTC brands can really hone in on. Mm. Oh, oh my gosh. So what our lovely listeners don't know is that we have amazing <laughs> editors and that we are coming up to the top of the fifth hour of recording. Yes. And what we love to do at the, <laughs> at the end of our show is give our guests kind of just the, like an open floor. Um, so Kristen would love, yeah, no pressure. But I'm like, you've given me so many open floors. I've taken, you didn't even give me an open floor. I was like, move out of the way. It's my floor. He's playing ushers. Yeah. It's time for me to go. (laughs) That's my, that's, that's, that's such a good song. It's, oh, it's my favorite song. I made my wedding DJ play it three times at my wedding reception. Three times. And it was a short reception. Every time he was like, are you sure? And I was like, I'm the You're bride. like, yeah. I'm sure. Chris- yeah. <laughs> Kristen's the only guest that's going to get her own <laughs> outro song. Just so, just so we're, we're clear yes. on that. We're going to have to cut that in there. But really, no, no pressure, but would love any final thoughts, feelings, tidbits, tangents, whatever you want on the concept of community, brands, conversational commerce, just anything you want to leave our listeners with. The floor is yours. Okay. If I had to leave with a tidbit, I think it comes from a call that I had this week with a CPG founder 
who we were talking about the ridiculousness of the last couple of years and that he went from really being able to scale and grow a company to like 20 employees and a full-time job for him and fully covering his family and feeling comfortable basically off the backs of Facebook and Instagram. And he was able to get to a certain point with that. In the last two years, especially the last year, has forced really difficult conversations internally about what the business was about, what they were doing, why they were doing it, how they were going to move forwards. And he actually didn't have to let anybody go because he was able to find really creative uses of all the people he had brought on because he said, look, we saw what was happening on paid ads and we were able to transition some of those resources to all these other channels we realized we mm -hmm. had to be on. And something that I wrote down that he said was, the only regret I have was waiting until the industry forced me to do this when I knew it was mm -hmm. the right thing to do. And I think it's the best thing I've heard ever, which is we've known that paid ads are going to get harder and harder. They're going to continuously get harder. Emails getting harder. Tracking everything is getting harder. So you have to continuously diversify your channels, be in front of consumers and the way they're engaging with brands. And that is not just always with a purchase intent in mind. So thinking about how can I be somebody or something that gets in front of somebody else with a message that resonates with them on a place that is deeper than a buying intent. That is the mm. best advice I can give you for going through the rest of this year, through next year, and through everything else that's going to come. And it's going to keep getting harder. It's going to keep, we're going to keep getting curveballs. If you can come back around to what am I doing? Why? For who? Why would they buy? And more importantly, why would they even care? You come around to that, things get a lot easier because you can always have kind of this this kind of um, narrow vision on the why of what you're doing, and that will help you make better decisions, even though it's going to feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable because you're not going to be going mm. over the largest markets ever. But that is the best thing I've learned, I think, this whole year, and it came this week, and just hearing somebody say, this is what it takes these days to be a successful mm. brand. You got to be bigger than just ads and product. Totally. Oh, what a good. Thing. Oh, look at what there we go. Topic. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> Kristen, this has been the, first of all, the highlight of my week. Um, I'm just, like, Same. this has been so much fun. Um, we are so grateful uh, for you taking the time to chat with us here today. And before we let you go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you so they can get more uh, tidbits as well? Yes, I am probably most active on Twitter at KD LaFrance, LaFrance spelled L-A France, like the country. Uh, it's shocking how many times I have to spell the word France to people at cash registers. Also, Instagram, Kristen.LaFrance, or if you want to email me, it's KLF at GetRepeat.io and check out GetRepeat. Heck yeah. Amazing. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Thank you guys so much. So fun. Let's do it again. We will do it again. Kristen, thanks so much again. Literally that last line of the last open floor. I know we gave you so many, but that last <laughs> open floor made the hair 
on my forearms stand uh, straight yes! up. I had little chills. And I saw just... you do that, and then I was like, what did I say? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, is there a spider on him? Like, no, 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 no. Like, did I say something you. smart? <laughs> Near and dear to my heart as a Facebook media buyer, air quotes, like, that's what we do, and we've been dealing yeah. with it. And brand owners, listen to that brand owner Kristen just talked about. You got to keep moving, do some other stuff. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. Everyone else, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. As we wrap up today's episode, another shout out to our sponsor, Postscript, the leader in SMS marketing for Shopify and Shopify Plus brands. If you're not already using Postscript, be sure to check out their free 30-day trial. That's right, 30 full days, an entire calendar month for free. We've heard some brands have made over $100,000 during their free trial, so don't sleep on this. For your 30-day free trial, check out the link in our show notes or visit postscript.io. Again, that's postscript.io to start your free trial today.